The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Capella University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You've likely experienced an awkward moment or two in your life. You say or do something that's socially out of sync, leaving the person you're interacting with bemused and confused, and you feeling like running and hiding under a rock. While awkwardness is an uncomfortable feeling and can hurt us socially, my guest today argues that there is some upside to it. His name is Tai Tashiro. He's a psychologist and the author of Awkward, the science of why we're socially awkward and why that's awesome. Today on the show, Tai highlights his research on awkwardness. He explains what exactly we feel when we feel awkward and what triggers the feeling. He then digs into why some people are more awkward than others and the detriments that come with being socially awkward. He then shares things chronically awkward people can do to be less so, like developing social algorithms and studying manners. And we end our conversation discussing the upsides of awkwardness and how to balance it with the downsides. If you struggle with social awkwardness or know someone who does, this episode will provide you with a lot of actionable advice and insights on both embracing and mitigating your propensities. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is awkward, where you find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. All right, Tai Tashiro, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. So you're a psychologist and you've specialized in researching something a particular, it's a, it's a weird, it's not, I don't want to say it's weird, it's different. You, you research awkwardness. Uh, how does a psychologist get into researching awkwardness? Well, uh, th- that's a good question. I got interested in social awkwardness about three years ago. And it was just one of these life experience things where I had a lot of friends who had moved to new cities or were in new jobs, just kind of coincidentally at the same time. And some of these folks were socially awkward and I knew them to be great people. They had great character and were really interesting and had a lot to offer. But they did have that awkwardness where they stumbled around and were a little bit clumsy in the initial parts of social interactions. And I thought to myself, if they could just skip the first five minutes of social interactions, they'd probably be a lot better off. And I thought it was really too bad that other people weren't giving them a chance based on some of these small social graces that they had difficulty handling. And so I got into the research literature and I thought people must be looking at social awkwardness. Turns out nobody in the research community calls social awkwardness awkwardness. (laughs) They have all kinds of other terms for it, but there's been about over a thousand studies that are related to social awkwardness that can tell us why people are awkward and also reveals this surprising upside to having an awkward disposition. Yeah. So what, what do researchers call awkwardness? Oh, they have all kinds of things. So social psychologists will call it a social skill deficit. Um, you have behavioral geneticists who will call it the broad autism phenotype, which is a very jargony term 
to say that you have social skill deficits, some troubles communicating, and you tend to get these obsessive interests where you really get narrowly focused on something that you really love. So, okay, let's, so awkwardness, let's describe what it is, just a feeling of ineptitude in small social situations, like what causes us to feel awkward? Yeah, so we can think about a lot of different ways. Uh, there is that emotional component to it. So people will say this feels really awkward and you get that visceral sensation of discomfort. If you're the one being awkward <laughs> in a moment, then it feels like walking nose first into a glass door and kind of catches you by surprise and you're really disoriented. It's what psychologists would call a high activation emotion, meaning that your heart rate's really going, you're sweating, your muscles are tense. And it's not a great emotional state actually to problem solve. So people have probably had the experience of doing something awkward and then whatever they do to try to fix it actually makes the situation worse. <laughs> so it's because we're so panicked, we wanna make the situation right. So awkwardness can be emotional. One of the favorite definitions for me is the root of the word awkward, which is an old Norse word, afugur. And that means facing a different direction. And I really like that because it tells us a lot about what the psychological research shows us with awkwardness, which is that awkward people see the world differently. They might miss social cues or social expectations that are in plain sight to everybody else. But it also means that they're looking at something unusual or different, and that might be valuable or interesting in the long run. Yeah, and we'll get into those upsides of awkwardness. So, like, why, like, why do we have that feeling, right? Like, there's you know evolutionary reasons why we we feel happiness, why we feel depressed, why feel awkward. Yeah, I think well, why feel awkward, and there's also why feel awkward so strongly, <laughs> because right. a lot of times awkward situations are not life or death <laughs> situations. If your fly is undone, that's not going to kill anybody. <laughs> you know, it's not going to hurt you. Or, uh, but boy, we get really worked up about it, and it probably goes back to the idea that we're such social animals as humans, and. It's, you know, if you look back at hunter-gatherer times, which was the majority of human history, those were social groups of under 50 people, and everybody knew everybody, and your survival was not guaranteed. So life expectancy for most of human history, up to about 150 years ago, was under 40 years old. And so it was a life-or-death battle every day, and you needed everybody to be focused on the same long-term goals, like getting food or uh, shelter or protecting each other. And so you needed a really cohesive, efficient social unit. And that's why we're so attuned to small social behaviors that are out of place because you didn't want to find out that Larry was stealing food from the storage shed when everybody is starving or that someone was going to betray you in a battle. Uh, once you're involved in it, you needed to know beforehand if people were going to deviate from the larger social expectations. Got you. So, and you argue in the book that feeling awkward, right? We felt it, you know, since caveman times. You argue that feeling awkward is more common in our modern day. Why is that? Yeah, there's been a lot of large sociological changes that have made all of us feel a little bit more awkward. Uh, one of the obvious ones that's easy to overlook is that we're more urban than we used to be. So we interact with certainly more than 50 people on a, on a daily basis oftentimes, and a lot of those folks are strangers. So when we go to the coffee shop or the grocery store, 
we don't know most of the people we're surrounded by. That's actually unusual in the course of human history. And all these different folks might have different cultural expectations or social expectations. And that puts us in this state of unknowing and the state of trying to connect with people when we don't really know where they're coming from or what their background is. And so that can make us feel awkward. I think another thing is uh, technology is just something that we're getting used to still. And there's so many different forms. So your etiquette over text versus Facebook versus Instagram or LinkedIn, there's all different social expectations for what you do in those different mediums and also how you behave. And so that's a little bit tricky to figure out how to navigate these things. Right. Yeah. Curb your enthusiasm when you said that, you know, the idea we're surrounded by strangers who have different ideas of what's appropriate. Like curb your enthusiasm is basically the show that highlights that. (laughs) That is so true. I mean, he does such a great job of pointing out that there's all these little mysteries (laughs) to social life on a daily basis, some of which strike us as quite odd, but we don't really want to ask anybody else if those things are odd. Uh, But I think a lot of us feel that. And uh, it's good to know, actually, that, hey, most of your fellow human beings are feeling uncomfortable (laughs) in a lot of these same social situations that feel ambiguous or nebulous to you. Right. And going back to the technology, one of the things you talk about in the book is that with technology, um, you miss out on nuance, right? You don't have that face-to-face where you can look at facial expressions, body language. So it's hard to detect, okay, was he being sarcastic or was that a joke? Yeah, that is so true. It's so easy to misinterpret what somebody else is saying. And it creates a lot of anxiety in the person on the other end. Or even if someone doesn't text you back right away, you can feel anxious about, gosh, did I say something stupid or are they mad at me? Oftentimes we find out that was just needless anxiety. But that's what happens with technological communication. We don't have things, even like how far you stand from somebody, sends a lot of social information or the amount of eye contact, uh, tactile you know, touch is a huge thing. And even the intonation of somebody's voice conveys a tremendous amount of social information. If you're on email or text, you're missing out on these wide variety of cues that were actually wired to be attentive to, to decode what somebody else might be thinking. Gotcha. So uh, you mentioned earlier that awkward people, the, the word awkward comes with that uh, Norse word for like, you know, looking a different direction. So they awkward people see the world differently. So how do they see the world differently compared to non-awkward people? You know, I like to use this uh, spotlight analogy uh, to explain how awkward people see the world. So imagine you see life unfold before you on a stage, and that stage is broadly illuminated. So you could see people coming on stage, exiting the stage. Uh, You'd see, probably spend most of your time center stage, because that's where most of the central interactions would take place. Uh, But you could also gather social context. And that's how most people see the social world is broadly illuminated. Now, awkward people, on the other hand, see their stage spotlighted. And that spotlight tends to fall a little bit left of center by thought experiment. And so that means they're going to miss out on some of the key social information that's taking center stage. But it also means that they're seeing other aspects of what's going on in a great degree of detail. And so they tend to have tremendous focus. Uh, Whatever they see under that spotlight is seen with brilliant clarity. And so that can be a good thing. (laughs) But what you have to do when you're an awkward person is you have to learn to, one, recognize that you're prone to missing certain social cues or social expectations. 
And you have to learn to move that spotlight to the right places at the right time. So it takes a little bit more choreography in your mind. Right. So this attention to detail that awkward people have in this focus and missing social cues, it sounds like, you know, when you hear that, it sounds like that's the traits of like the autism spectrum. Is awkwardness simply on the autism spectrum or can you be awkward and not be on the spectrum? Yeah. You know, as I got into the research, I actually realized that was an important distinction to make um, because I think it's something in broader popular culture that we get a little bit confused about. So it turns out that autism symptoms, uh, which are also Asperger's symptoms, there are three components. There's the social skill deficits, there's the communication problems, and then these obsessive interests. So those symptoms fall along a bell curve in the general population, which means that the average person in the middle of that bell curve actually has a few autistic characteristics, actually. Now, as you get further out towards the edge of that curve, let's say the 85th to 98th percentile, that's kind of where the awkward people sit. And then once you cross the 99th percentile, that top one percentile, that's where you diagnose somebody as autistic or with Asperger's. Gotcha. So the spotlight effect that people who are awkward tend to have, like what else is going in? What else is going on in their brain with that spotlight effect? Does it cause them to, I mean, what do they miss specifically whenever they're interacting socially? Is it body cues? Is it, you know, meaning behind words? What's going on there? Yeah, you know, it's, it, if you talk to an awkward person, a lot of times they'll say they're drawn to whatever's sparkly in a room, <laughs> which you would think that they're kidding about that, but it's actually sometimes true. They they tend to focus on these peripheral sorts of things. Uh, when, you know, not awkward people walk into a room, let's say at a, a cocktail party or some kind of mixer, what non-awkward people do is they instinctively look for the most powerful person in the room, and they're really good at identifying that without even having to think about it. And then what they'll do is they'll look that person directly in the eyes to try to figure out what's their mood or what are they thinking. And so non-awkward people do that without having to think twice about making sense of the social scene. And awkward people will walk into a room and they tend to focus on the non-social aspects of the situation. So they might look at the art or the architecture or the lighting or uh, anything except what's social. And in a social situation, obviously, you should probably be devoting your attention to those kinds of cues. So right off the bat, they're missing all kinds of contextual information when they enter a social scene. Um, do, do awkward people know that they're awkward? Usually, yeah. <laughs> so most of the time they know that... Uh, I kind of struggle here in certain social situations and can be a little bit off. I don't know that it's always something that they want to think about <laughs> a lot, but if you get to a real honest conversation with an awkward person, they'll, they'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty awkward. And sometimes in rare cases, if someone's really awkward, you actually might get a lack of social awareness in those situations, but mo most people do know. Right. And are Awkward people, like, are they socially anxious? Like, do they have social anxiety? Like, are they afraid to interact? Or they don't, they're not afraid, they just don't have the skills to interact, you know, adeptly or jointly. Yeah, that's that, that's a really good point because the key component to social anxiety is that the worry is irrational or unfounded. And I, I think to tell the truth with awkward people, they probably should be a little bit more worried <laughs> than the average person about how they're going to handle a social situation because they have evidence that they 
mishandle social situations more often than the average person. So I actually think as long as it's not debilitating, as long as it doesn't keep them from being social or doesn't compromise their ability to interact calmly in a situation, some of that social anxiety might be helpful because it motivates you to think ahead about, okay, what's, what's this event and what are the expectations and how can I prime my brain to think about the things I need to do? Which is one of the good things about social awkwardness, which is when awkward people think deliberately ahead of time about how to handle a situation, they do significantly better. Um, and compared to people who aren't awkward, who can just walk in and automatically be social, awkward people have to do, do some of that forethought to have a good interaction. Right. Yeah. You talk about if you have a child that's awkward or if you yourself are awkward, one of the things is like kind of create uh, basically their algorithms for social interactions. Like if then, I guess implementation intentions is what they're called in the psychological field. So can you give us like a, an example of those? Yeah. Well, I can give you one from personal life, actually. So when I was a kid, when we would go to the Wendy's to get something to eat, and this would go on for a long time. So imagine you're 10, 11, 12 years old. You know, most, most families would just go to the Wendy's and go inside. Uh, my parents would park the car. They'd turn around and they'd say, Ty, it's time to mentally prepare. <laughs> I'd say, okay. I knew exactly what that meant. And they were going to walk me through a Socratic dialogue about the kinds of social expectations I didn't encounter inside and have me talk through how I was going to handle those. So they might say, what's the first thing you need to look for when you walk inside? And I'd say, well, I should look for a line. And like, yeah, that's right. Because sometimes I'd walk in and I'd cut to the front of the line, not because I wanted to cheat or get ahead of anybody else, just because I didn't see it or I didn't think about it. And so, okay, so now I'm at the back of the line. Now what do you need to do? I should think about what I need to order. I should get my money ready. Uh, when I get to the cashier, I should say thank you. When I turn around, I should be careful not to hit anybody with my tray because I'm going too fast. So we would go step by step through these things. And we would do these mental preparation drills for these different situations dozens and dozens of times. And eventually I would get it. And I can happily walk into a Wendy's now <laughs> and order for myself <laughs> and make the whole thing go smoothly. Um, but that's how awkward life goes. And it takes a tremendous amount of patience and persistence from parents. And I think kindness, too, to understand that their kid doesn't love being in this kind of situation. And that kind of extra coaching is really vital to them being able to navigate social right. life. So you were an awkward kid growing up. Oh yeah, super super awkward. Um, I'm, I, you know, I've been awkward for as long as I can remember. I think when I was younger, you don't really realize it because, you know, when you're in grade school, uh, your peers are pretty pretty forgiving about things. But as junior high started to approach, I, I had an internal realization that I need to pull it together. <laughs> my my parents certainly did too, and uh, I'm really thankful that I had folks, uh, teachers, parents, coaches who saw that I just needed a little extra encouragement and instruction. And that made all the difference right. in the world. Yeah, I love the uh, you, the story when you went to junior high for the first time and you the first day of school, you dressed like an accountant. 
<laughs> I still do, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I like khakis, uh, pleated khakis, and a button-up starched Oxford, and these enormous square glasses that look like bifocals. <laughs> you know, I'm going to my first day of seventh grade. But I, I mean, I love it because it was so relatable. Because I think everyone's done that at some point. Like they thought they were doing the thing that would make them look, you know, fit in and make them look awesome, but. <laughs> We come to find out, no. <laughs> yeah, kind of the harder we try sometimes, right, the, the worse right. it goes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I thought my, my thinking behind that was, and I thought all summer about this, but uh, I thought I need to be convey a mature and professional image <laughs> in junior high because I was, you know, stepping up to this more mature environment, which turned out to not be true. Right. <laughs> but but uh, so I thought, yeah, if I... If I look the part, then that. that now, my help. awkward story from like when I was a kid, I was in elementary school. I think it was like third grade, maybe. And like my sister at the time, she was in high school. And this is when like New Kids on the Block were big. And so she's, she was a big New, new Kids <laughs> okay. on the Block fan. I thought, okay, my sister, she's in high school. I must like New Kids on the Block too, because that's what middle, I guess she was in middle school at the time. Sure. And so I, I got a New Kids on the Block lunchbox. And I remember I brought it to school. I thought was, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. And I get, pull it out and like everyone's like, "What in the world? Why do you have a new kids on the block?" <laughs> and so, you know, I, I remember like the kids. What you do at the lunch? You you set your lunch box up so like you know, it was on its side, so you had like you know people could see your the cover of your lunch box, and you'd like hide behind it. Uh, I didn't do that. I would like hide it, and I think I just stopped. I went to the, I just told him I want a paper sack from here on out because I yeah. can't I can't do this Re retreat right. full retreat from the yeah yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think, uh, well, hey, I, I can respect the thought behind it, though. It, it, it seemed, seemed like, like it worked. should have worked, but it, it did not. Um, okay, so, you know, <laughs> being thoughtful about your social interactions and really breaking down every interaction into component parts can be very helpful. You also talk about being less awkward with friends. I know we've had people on the podcast talk about, you know, men in their 20s and 30s. It gets hard to make friends. It's easy to make friends when you're a kid. For some reason, it gets hard to make friends as an adult, why is it so awkward um, as an adult to make friends? Like when you're a kid, like you just like, hey, let's be friends. And you guys did. But like now it's like it feels weird trying to make that connection with somebody else. Yeah, it, it totally does. And uh, some of the demographic data about loneliness uh, supports this. In, in fact, for men, uh, men are more lonely than women on average. But the loneliest group demographically in the United States are young adult men, actually. And they have a really hard time connecting with each other. And that changes dramatically from high school and, and the college years. So, you know, I think part of the problem is just this broader cultural belief that we need to be cool. You know, Gino Ariyama, the coach for UConn women's basketball, he had a great press conference a while ago. And they're asking him, you know, why have you been the most successful program um, you know, maybe in college basketball period. And he said, the key is that we recruit kids who are enthusiastic. He said, it's so hard to find people who are unapologetically enthusiastic about what they love because there's so much pressure to be cool and kind of aloof and detached. And I, that really resonated with me. And I think that's really consistent with what we see in the psychological data, which is that when we move to, um, young adulthood, for some reason, that aloofness and that detachment, we think that's the way that we need to present ourselves and interact with people. 
Uh, but of course, if we take a step back from it, that's a really good way to not have friends. So if somehow we could sign a treaty <laughs> among all uh, adults and just say, hey, let's drop the pretense and let's just say that we don't have friends and we're a little bit lonely and let's hang out, uh, things would go a lot better uh, for, for each other. But, you know, I think also part of it's being urban, the more concentrated an urban population is, the more aloof and detached people come across. And it's partly that we don't want to get overwhelmed with too many friends or, you know, friends that we're stuck with that we didn't really want, maybe. Right. And so we err on the side of being overly cautious. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I've learned, too, is that you know, people are reluctant to make the first move. But mm -hmm. I noticed, I think that like, everyone's waiting for everyone else to make the first move, right? Like just so like true. invite, yeah. And you be like, they're waiting for someone else to invite them to do the thing. So yeah. you might as well be the person that does the inviting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we're so, especially among men, like we can be nervous about asking another guy to do things <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, it doesn't have to be weird. <laughs> you know, you can just, uh, find a point of common interest. That's, you know, there's, there's just a few things that really predict how people become friends. And one of them is proximity. So, you know, put yourself in situations where you're nearby other people that you could become friends with. And that sounds so common sense, but we don't do that all the time. Sometimes we're at home with our Netflix or our Xbox or whatever else, and that's okay. But if it's taking us away from interactive situations, then that's a problem. And the other thing is similarity. So birds of a feather tend to flock together more often than opposites attract. And so a real great way to ask somebody to hang out is just to go back to something where you found out that you shared a common interest and say, hey, you want to go watch the football game or you want to go golfing or whatever else. That's a really easy way to make that initial. Connection. I thought it was, you talk about, you highlight research that that was interesting uh, about millennials and manners, like how they're really into manners. Mm. What's going on there? Why, why has this been this uptick in interest amongst 20-somethings about, you know, Emily Post? Yeah, right. It seems a bit odd, right? Uh, I'm a Gen Xer, and I remember being really bitter when, when people tried to impose manners upon me. Um, and I think that was actually common for boomers and, and Gen Xers. Millennials, interestingly enough, are going a lot to YouTube. And they're watching these videos about how to go to a nice restaurant or, you know, how to dress appropriately for a work event. And they're really interested in picking up on these social graces that they've apparently not picked up uh, while they were growing up. And it's, it's really kind of neat because they're saying, hey, I want to be sure I'm respectful. I want to be sure that I'm not stepping on anybody's toes and uh, presenting myself in a respectable manner. So um, I think it's actually a really neat thing. But the implication there, I think, is that for whatever reason, social life got so laid back when they were kids that they did pick up these social graces that they really want because that helps to structure a social interaction and take some of the anxiety and awkwardness gotcha. out. Manners are algorithms to combat awkwardness. They totally are. You know, I, uh, most awkward people I know, uh, when they, you know, really want to do well socially, uh, they study manners. And so sometimes you'll run into awkward people who are like overly rigid <laughs> with their manners or overly formal. And, it's actually an endearing quality because what they've done is they've tried to prepare themselves ahead of time to interact in a way that was 
you know, respectable and, and socially acceptable. Right, yeah, you talk about the people who, uh, like, read the 1950s etiquette guides. <laughs> and they try to bust that out. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. and then it just makes it even more awkward. <laughs> right. I had a couple students who did that because I think I had given a lecture one time, uh, you know, about how, hey, if you're a little bit awkward, you can study manners, and that's a good thing to do. I forgot to say you should get the most recent edition <laughs> of the manuals. And so I had a couple students doing these, yeah, old timey kinds of manners and found out that they had gotten the used copy from. Well, you also talk about dating and dating's always been awkward courtship, right? But you argue that it's more awkward than ever. And why is that? Is it what we've talked about before? It's like, there's more strangers. It's like more ambiguity about what's acceptable technology. Is that what's all going on there? Yeah. You know, that's, that's part of it. I I think one thing that's happening is people aren't marrying as much or aren't married period. And so the rate of single people in the United States is higher than it's ever been. So we're dating a lot more than we used to. <laughs> so that's part of it. If someone's never been married, then they're dating for longer than any other generation has. Uh, millennials compared to baby boomers are waiting basically twice as long to marry uh, compared to uh, boomers who are married by 22, 23 years old. So you're just dating a lot more. I think the second thing are the dating apps. So here's a new cultural medium where you need to interact with people. And I think apps are great and, and fine, but there's new rules there. And so it can be pretty uncomfortable knowing how to be appropriate or how to handle other people's inappropriate behavior uh, in, in these online forums. So yeah, it's, it's really kind of ambiguous. It was easier in some ways for boomers who, you know, they were married by 22, uh, 23. And so that kind of took care of it. But now we're 27, 28, 29, still dating, and it, it's a little yeah, bit awkward. Yeah, I guess when, when when there was an end goal of marriage, like you were able, you had this end goal where you could define the relationship, right? And now it's like, well, what are we? What, what's going on here? And people don't really have those explicit conversations, and they end up, you know, just awkward. Yeah, I tried to look at the <laughs> research on the different types of relationships. So, you know, serious, married single friends with benefits. There's all these different categories. And the, the way it looked visually was like a voting map of uh, districts for voting. So I actually called one of the sections in that chapter gerrymandering the friend zone because it's kind of ambiguous. Are we just friends or friends with benefits or, you know, what is this thing that we're doing? So uh, we've been talking about the downsides of awkwardness, right? Because you can get in the way of social interaction. And like, you know, a lot of your success in life and happiness in life um, depends on your social, you know, fluidity, like how you're, how you're able to manage that. But you, you talk about that while there's some downsides to being an awkward person, there are some upsides. What are the benefits to being awkward? Yeah, I, you know, one of the things to know, I think, is that Although awkward people can struggle with some of these social skills or social expectations, um, it, it doesn't mean that they're not likable. And so I think as long as people can show, can convey that they're fair and they're kind people uh, who would be loyal friends, then they can have a really rich social life. So I've been really lucky uh, pretty much throughout my life that. I've had really rich, gratifying social relationships, and people were willing to overlook my social awkwardness uh, because I was able to convey that, hey, I've got, I've got a good heart, and I'm trying to do the right thing here. It might be a little clumsy at the start, but, uh, but, but we'll get there. So I think that's one thing for awkward people to know. 
I think a, a second thing that's really interesting is the spotlighted focus, if we come back to that. So, you know, you have the sharp focus and you see things with a great degree of detail and awkward people tend to really love whatever it is they're interested in. They just take it next level. So like we might like Star Wars, for example, but that doesn't necessarily mean we'll dress up like Chewbacca, you know, and <laughs> go walk around the streets or, um, you know, we might like video games, but we don't necessarily get in chat rooms and, you know, go to conventions and awkward people are kind of nerdy in that way. So they're, they're really enthusiastic about the things they love. And I think that alone by itself is a great quality. But if you combine the sharp focus and this attention to detail and this great enthusiasm, those are actually ingredients for what psychologists would call deliberate practice. And you might have heard of that in the popular press with the 10,000 hours people need to devote to become expert or good at something. And, you know, the qualities awkward people have actually dispose them towards deliberate practice. And that can lead to some extraordinary outcomes or even innovative breakthroughs. Yeah, you, you called that, uh, I love that phrase, I never heard it before, but like the rage for mastery. Yes. A lot of awkward yes. people have. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a separate line of research on gifted children uh, done by Ellen Winner. She's a great researcher at Boston College, and she coined this phrase, the rage to master. And what she found was these chess geniuses or mathematical geniuses or precocious ballerinas they all had this kind of obsessive quality to perfect the different skills and components that were necessary to become great in their field. And they, importantly, one of the things that they do, uh, these kids with this rage to master, is that they spend a disproportionate amount of time on the things that they're worst at. <laughs> so if they, if they love uh, football or something like that, and they're not a great tackler, let's say, they will spend extra time working on that thing that's actually their weakness. And that's part of why they end up becoming really good at something in the long run. Right. But then the downside is they might alienate themselves from others. So you have to, it's like you have to balance that out with being intentional about your social skills as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, probably everybody knows someone who is very successful and who just can't shut it off. You know, they're working at all times. Um, even when they come home, they're still on their phone or they're still obsessing about work. And yeah, yeah, that's one of the tricks is you have to find a way to compartmentalize these things so that when you are working, you're going 120 percent and giving it your best. But there have to be hard stops where you say, OK, I'm putting that away. And now's the time to devote 100 percent of my energy to being social and being present especially for awkward people who, you know, might have trouble with the social interaction anyways, they need to bring a hundred percent of their effort to these uh, social situations. Right. Yeah. Because you talk about this in the book, this, the upside of awkwardness, this intense focus that can make you very skillful at what you do. But as you talk about in the book, a lot of success in life is being able to persuade people that you have a product or a skill that is of use to them. And so you have to balance your intense focus, your ma your rage to master with the ability to socialize as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely true. And, you know, that was another great message I got when I was growing up from, from mentors and, and parents. They said, hey, you can be as clever as you want to be, <laughs> you know, but if you can't uh, connect your ideas to people in a way that's understandable and useful, then it's going to be really hard for you to get to where you want to go. 
And that, that, well, that really resonated with me. And I'm really glad that they emphasize that you need to st- take a step back, Ty, and you need to think about how you're going to make yourself a broader, more well-rounded person, because that wasn't something that came naturally to me. Yeah. Well, Hitai, this is a great book, and it's been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, well, they can go to awkwardbook.com, and that'll take them to my website, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those places. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate people checking awesome. it well, out. Awesome. Tai Toshiro, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thank you. My guest today is Tai Toshiro. He's the author of the book, Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at TaiToshiro.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash awkward. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, got something out of it, I'd appreciate if you take a minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps that a lot. And if you've done that already, please tell a friend or two about the podcast that helps out too. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful, but we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.